both exciting and a little bit, you know, I see half the group gone now. Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's amazing, all the kids. I, uh, message this morning is definitely one of the resurrection, and uh, we'll be sharing from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, as the, script, as the reading for the leading into the message this morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by in a dazzling, dazzling apparel, and as, they, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all to the rest. Uh, I've been thinking in terms of of, of how to approach the message this morning because there's, there's so many things that I want to share. Uh, one is that focus that you've got to realize what they, these people have been through. They are going to the tomb to finish the customary proper anointing of the burial rites, if you will, of, of Jesus. Everything was hurried on Friday when Jesus was removed from the cross because it was at, the Sabbath would begin at, 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 at dusk. And in fact, it was interesting if you read through Matthew and, and, uh, and other, well, you put all the accounts together. In fact, there's, an, uh, to me, one of the, the best resources that you want to read. If you ever want to read the Gospels, in a harmony. And that means where all the Gospels, where each verse has kind of tried to plug in. Man spent almost a lifetime trying to put this together. And it's called the Gospel in Stereo. It's, it ha- I don't think it's even in print anymore. But it's one of those things that you can go on to the online bookstores and stuff like that. And you can find copies. And generally speaking, they're still fairly ex- inexpensive. And uh, anytime I see one, I pick it up. And I normally got two or three of them floating around someplace, uh, in addition to the one that I've been using for 30 years. And what it is is it just puts everything into into order as and as best as one might be able to, uh, because all four of the Gospels were written for different audiences with different reasons, and therefore emphasize different parts of what happened in reference to the life of Christ. His crucifixion, his death, his, his burial, and his resurrection. And people have used that as an argument against the, the, the Gospels being a real uh, picture of what happened. But the reality is, is it's, it is a full picture of what happened. And so The Harmony is a great book, uh, of the, uh, the, stereo of, of the, the Gospel in Stereo. It's a great uh, book to have. It's a paperback. It's not, well, I shouldn't say anymore, being that they're getting harder to find. It may be expensive now, but uh, anyway, it's worth having. Um, when Jesus was taken from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea went and, and, and asked to have the body uh, from Pilate. He said, may we have the body of Jesus. And, and Pilate, uh, as you go through the gospel accounts, Pilate was looking at it and saying, well, how, I don't know. It's, you know, he's even dead yet. Now, short of time for a typical death of crucifixion. What had happened, however, was because the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin the Sanhedrin are the, the men who lead the Hebrew people. It's kind of like their, their Congress, if you would, their government. And, and, and 
they had approached Pilate and said, look, we're approaching the Sabbath. We have these, these men hanging on the cross at the Sabbath. So they have to, to die quickly. And there was a method, very torturous method, that the Romans had come up with to make it happen quickly. Most people don't understand that on the cross, what the death was generally by suffocation in a sense. You finally collapsed to where your lungs kept getting your pushed up, your, 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 your organs get pushed up into your lungs and squishing until you're finally out of breath. And that could take sometimes two or three days. They would keep giving you sour wine to, to, to quench your thirst and keep you going for a little bit. And, and it could be extremely torturous. But if it needed to be something that happened quickly, it was equally torturous as to what they would do. And that was they would literally break the kneecaps with a big, huge wooden hammer, you know, break their kneecaps, and that caused them to slump immediately and, and, and suffocate very quickly. That's what the, the Sanhedrin asked for. And that's what the Romans did to both of the criminals that were there. But when they got to Jesus, he appeared already dead. However, one soldier decided to make sure, and he simply pierced the side up at an angle, and he saw water and blood come out together, which meant that the sack around the heart had filled with water because of... Uh, because of I'm not a, a medical person, but it, it happens when you start to, to dehydrate and a lot of other things that go on, and, and the heart fills up with water around the sac, the sac of, around the heart and the lungs. And the end result is, is that there was water from the blood that came out, and they said, yeah, he's dead. And Pilate didn't know all of that. He asked for the centurion who had been in charge. Now, this centurion had probably been in charge of everything since the scourging, the lashes, to the death, you know, to seeing him die on the cross. And he was asked very directly, as Jesus did, he said, yeah. Now, this centurion was a professional leader, and soldier, and officer in the Roman army, and this likely was his duty in the sense of he was not an, an amateur at crucifixion. He knew death when he saw it. I'm just going through all of this so that you can understand. Pilate was looking at this and saying, is he really dead? Let me talk to the centurion who was there. Because if he's really dead, the centurion will leave. If he's not really dead, you know what? The centurion wouldn't have left. He'd have sent one of his officers, one of his, soldier, one of his other soldiers. But he showed up. Pilate said, okay, you can have the body. And then also read this morning was the, the, the picture of, of uh, the Sanhedrin going to Pilate uh, to have the tomb guarded. The Pharisees, it's an almost ironic thing, actually remember what he said. He said he could raise his, his body up in three days. What if the disciples came and stole it? We'd be in all the more hot water with all of this stuff. And so the Pilate says, you have a guard. Now, there's a question as to whether he said, you have a guard or you have a guard. We can't get the voice context there perfectly. Meaning, you have a guard, use your temple guards. Or, you have a guard, take one of ours. I, and it's evenly split as to who says what and, and, and how they think about it. Some people say it doesn't make a difference. I think personally Pilate was enough of a politician and enough of a person who realized with all this that's going on, he still was not out of the hot water. And uh, I wouldn't have any doubt that he would release a guard of Roman soldiers to, to stand out and, and, and just make sure nothing happens. Because he was already as deep as he could be in this. And uh, the smallest number of, of regiments that existed in the Roman army, and I, I, this is one of those things you can look up online. Uh, I, I can't pronounce the Latin for it, but it's a group of eight, eight men. So that would have been the smallest number that they would have, have discharged. 
and they would have stood guard two uh, two on uh, and 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 two or four on and four off, four on and four off. And so there would have been at least four men awake at any given time uh, on the watch. Just explaining all the details so that you get keep that in picture, because the reality is. There are a lot of arguments as to whether the tomb was empty or not, and if it was empty, how it got empty. And it is important for us to at least look at what the Word says and and what some people say about it. If we go by what we've read this morning, basically the the, the women were there across from Jesus where he was uh, when he was buried. From they were across from the tomb. They knew where the tomb was. They go back to the tomb the next morning, or, well, two mornings away actually, and they found the stone rolled back. This stone would have been to a, a, a stone which was typical for a rich man. He had he would have a carved in a tomb that had been chiseled and carved into a stone or into a hillside. Had a, would have at least one shelf. It have made, and, and if other people were to join that, it would be like a family sepulcher that you would find in, in other places. They might add more shelves to it. Uh, okay, No one had ever been buried in this one. It belonged to a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, and even though he wasn't from Jerusalem, the, the thing was to be buried near the temple was part of their honor and, and, and stuff. He was on the Sanhedrin. And so... He wanted his, and it was his tomb. But he was also a follower of Jesus. And so he says, hey, I I want to bury him there. The stone that would have been rolled into place would have been fairly large. And because grave robbing was a serious problem, it would have been large enough that it was not easily removed. It's important to know these things. This would have been common practice. So they found the stone removed. They didn't know how it was removed. They didn't know where what had happened. There was an appearance of angels. There was uh, and there was fear. Their fear, uh, as they saw them, they looked at them. These they, they were dazzling. They were bright. They, you know, uh, and most always when you see anybody in scripture that sees an angel, it's kind of like whoa, you know. And and there is a fear because tied with part of 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 the. Hebrew culture is the idea that an angel appears, judgment's not too far behind. And so there was that sense. Do not be afraid, the angel says. I know you're seeking Jesus who was, you know, uh, crucified. But as it says here in Luke, verse 5, he's not here. He is risen, just like he said he was. The claim of an empty tomb and a risen Christ is what the Scriptures make. This is clear. This is what the Scriptures say. And I know that there are people that try to go to the Scriptures and debate that. I don't see how they can. I'm I'm just telling you. You just simply read it and you read it over and over and over again. I don't know how you can walk away with the fact the tomb is empty and the belief was that he was risen. Okay, so start thinking there. But was it possible? Could that really take place? The Sanhedrin took the place that there could not be a resurrection, even though many of them believed that in a resurrection. Some of them, however, were Sanhedrin, uh, of, of the, of, of the uh, Sadducees. And there was a little song that said they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection and, and, and the coming heaven. Uh, but but you know, as a whole, the, the, there was an anticipation of heaven and a resurrection. And, and, uh, but the, 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 the Sanhedrin as a council, uh, it says the, the, the soldiers went to them. And said, hey, we've got a problem. The tomb's empty and we don't know how. Well, here's what you do, they said. You basically say you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. Interesting thing to know who stole it while they were asleep. 
I mean, it's inconsistent. But, by the way, that is the story they stuck with. And it says, Matthew says, they stuck with it a long time. And, and in many cases, they stick with it still to this day, that that's what happened. Stolen body. Some said, oh, some have argued since then it was the wrong tomb. I, I could see how that could happen, possibly, you know, in the sense of, of being distraught and, 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 and everything. But, you know, they had been there just a couple of days before, seen where he was buried, walked, went home, came back. And then when they went back and told the disciples what had happened, James, or Peter and John said, no, 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 I don't think so. And, and they went running where? To the tomb, and what did they find? According to John, it was empty. So they must have run, run to the same wrong tomb, you know, or some other wrong tomb, you know. But the bottom line is, do you think the Pharisees knew and the Sanhedrin knew where the right tomb was? Do you think the Roman soldiers knew where the right tomb was? In fact, even if Jesus had not been buried in a tomb at all and had been buried in a criminal, unmarked criminal's grave, do you think they would have known within those few days where he was buried? Do you think they would have left him in that <laughs> unknown place uh, or left him at that point saying, oh, no, no, we're not going here. They would have brought the body out and said, here he is. They'd have put it an end to it immediately. So the wrong tomb doesn't work. We go back to the original thing. The guard says the tomb is empty. The Sanhedrin says, well, it's a stolen body. So we're still stuck with that one. But if the body was stolen, how did it happen with the guards there? Oh, they were sleeping. How many? At least eight. By the way, very severe punishment, even death penalty. For sleeping on your post, if a, especially where a seal of the government is involved and has been broken. So without waking any one of these eight guards, they rolled away a heavy stone quietly and carried out a dead body of a full-grown man quietly, and snuck away in the dark, quietly. Many who have heard this theory found it difficult to accept. I'm inclined to be in that category. But there's been others that have come up. Let's face it, the idea is the tomb is empty, the body is missing. That part, I think we can look at and say, even most historians that are against Christianity will come up with some agreement with that as a whole today as they try to explain away the resurrection. Do you know how many theories there are about the resurrection and, 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 and the, what, how to make it, you know, argue it? I, I've been blown away. Some people say, well, there's five, six. There's dozens. I mean, there's groups, small little groups of people that believe just weird little things. I mean, it's just, did you, just in, in passing with that, do you realize that one half of a percent of the people in the United States still believe the world is flat? And there's an organization for them. And now you think one half of a percent. That's a couple million people. Still believe the world is flat. See, so you can, you can get a following for just about anything. But let me give you a couple of the ones that are quite amazing to me, but nonetheless, they, they, they attracted followings at different times. The wrong man theory. The wrong man was crucified. Even to the point where it was considered that possibly Judas was crucified and not Jesus. Therefore, Jesus was around after the crucifixion. I don't know how long they thought they could get away with something like that. If it had happened, uh, even if it had happened accidentally from the Romans' part, they arrested the wrong guy in the garden type of thing. But wait a minute. How does this go? Judas, 
revealed who the guy that needed to be arrested was. And Judas basically had it in for Jesus. Okay, so we, we lose that. Oh, this one is a killer. <laughs> Very careful of that. The twin theory. How many of you have heard the twin theory? Hey, well, that's not surprising, I guess, is it? <laughs> How's your sister? <laughs> it's, it's just the, the, the idea that either Jesus is twin or Jesus, one or the other, was crucified and the other one survived. Mass hypnosis theory. Now, I have to say, I have seen some of these magician guys that show up in, a, in, a, in some club, like some you know, casino, big, one of those big casino clubs, and they, they stand there and they say certain words, and the next thing you know, the whole audience is jumping up and down on one foot and different things. I, I'm assuming there is some kind of... But this go on and on and on and on indefinitely. It couldn't have been just one person, ultimately. And, you know... What you're telling me at this point, then, is that if it's the twin theory, the wrong man theory, or, or the mass hypnosis theory, all of these guys knew that it wasn't true, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And all of them, the left. Eyewitnesses that were willing to die for it. So, even at the very best shot, those all those arguments seem to be very weak. In 1965... There was a guy by the name of, of, of uh, uh, I can't think of his, his, his last name for a minute, Schoenfield, Hugh Schoenfield, who wrote a book called The Passover Plot. Some of you are old enough to remember this. Um, it really caused quite a stir. It made the bestsellers list. At a time that the things are still a little bit conservative, um, it had, I, I, I can't remember what I read, but I think it was at least seven or eight printings of it because it was so popular, people wanted to read it. And it was called The, Pass, you know, the Passover Plot was the title. And it incorporated one of the uh, theories that I hadn't mentioned yet, which was called the swoon theory. That was another one of the things that was believed that could have happened. Jesus just looked like he was dead. He passed out. He was such so his heartbeat was so weak that he swooned on the cross. He was buried as if he were dead. But then he 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 woke up in the tomb and was revived by the cool air of the tomb. And he rolled the stone away and escaped in the middle of the night. And the guards. The swoon theory. Passover plot takes this a lot further. You've got to understand, first off, Schoenfield was, he was determined to interrupt the belief of the resurrection. This guy had more footnotes than you can believe in his book. And he quoted scripture, and he did, you know, and it was touted as a scholarly book. And his conclusion was that it was actually the swoon theory taken to a higher level, it was actually a scheme of Jesus. He went to the cross having taken a drug that made him appear as dead with that really low, shallow heartbeat that would not have been detectable by a, a typical person going, yeah, you know, there's no heartbeat. You know, didn't have stethoscopes and all that kind of stuff. And they would have assumed him to be dead. And Jesus had connived all the way through, knowing that if he said certain things at certain places, he, he was, Schoenfield said he was a genius at being a con, and that basically he had deceived everybody, and he knew what he was doing to get the, 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 the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership angry enough at him to crucify him, that he would come back as the Messiah. Quite interesting. I mean, it's uh, here's a, a, just a quote out of the book. 
it is it it is the moment before sundown in Jerusalem. On the hill of Golgotha, three bodies are suspended on crosses. Two, the thieves are dead. The third appears so. This is the drugged body of Jesus of Nazareth, the man who planned his own crucifixion, who contrived to be given a uh, so por, uh, porific, I, I hope I get that right, potion to put him into a death-like trance. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, bearing clean linens and, and, and spices, approaches and recovers the still form of Jesus. All seems to be proceeding according to plan. It was a nightmarish undertaking, the outcome of the frightening logic of a genius, and it worked out. We have to discount, then, one of the accounts of the gospel, however, and just ignore a, a scripture. Even though he was using scripture periodically to quote it, you have to ignore a scripture. They pierced his side, and water and blood came out. We have to discount the testimony of the centurion, who was a professional soldier and probably a professional executioner. I, you know, what, what here is, is that it really boils down to, we've got, a, the, the dilemma is the tomb was empty and, you know, Jesus died on the cross. He was really dead. He died on the cross and he was buried in this tomb and now the tomb is empty. If it is empty because he's risen, then there's everything that Jesus said was true. We look at everything he says, and he says some pretty direct things. One is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. The Father and I are one. It's made very clear that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. I am the only way to salvation. Those are all things that are recorded in the Gospels that he said about himself. He's the door. Yeah. Uh, Acts goes on and says, there is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved other than that of Jesus Christ. Those are some very strong statements. And people are saying, no, we're not going to be. And quite candidly, they'll use the frame that narrow-minded or, or that calloused or however you want to put the term. What they're saying is, is that we just aren't going to receive a guy that says there's only one way. Therefore, there has to be another answer. And we will do anything we can to find it. And we'll write about it. We'll talk about it. And we're going to do whatever we can to disprove, undermine the Scriptures, especially that deal with the resurrection. I've had people call me, I don't know how many times, are you watching the Discovery Channel on the series about Jesus? Or are you watching the History Channel on the series about Jesus? And, and sometimes disturbed that I'm not. And I'm not saying that I should or I shouldn't. There, there's probably some, and some, some would say that I probably should be watching those things because there are other people watching them and I should be able to critique them. And... Uh, I, 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 I know numbers of other professional uh, apologists who are doing exactly that, that are far more uh, able to do that than I am. So I, I kind of depend on, on, on them. But the reality is, is that I tell people, if you find it on the Internet, if you find it, you see it on TV, the first responsibility is to take it to the Scripture and check it out yourself. You are accountable for that. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, you already know something about what it is. It's speculation from a non-Christian point of view. And it's basically there with the intent to undermine the authority of Scripture and the resurrection. I'm amazed at how many shows there are on television now. 
used to be we watched, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, for you know, over Easter, and, and then and then we watched uh, the Easter Parade movie uh, with Fred Astaire. Uh, and, 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 and I guess, again, I'm showing you how old I am. Uh, but, you know, today there is a hunger for wanting to know spiritual stuff. But I'm not sure there's a hunger to know spiritual truth. And that's why Jesus tells us we need to what? We're coming back to the Beatitudes. Hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. After His holiness. Seeking Him. Asking Him. Knocking at His door to know Him. And He says, and and the the bottom line is, how does that happen? It's through the Word. Through the Bible that we come to know Him. Like I said, most most credible scholars, even those that are... uh, against the, the, the authority of Scripture still believe that Jesus died on the cross and that there was an empty tomb. They just try to explain it in some other way. Uh, I have to tell you, I was a Passover plot person. When that book came out in 1965, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until 1976. Uh, I was in high school. My dad bought the book. My dad was not a believer. And he took that book and he read it through, and then he, he, he I w- had a problem with reading, and uh, and uh, so he made sure I understood what was going on, read parts of it and stuff. And I said, that, that makes sense. And quite candidly, the guy was extremely convincing. If you had no real religious background, I could see that. I can see why so many people bought the book, my dad being one of them. And I have to tell you, I walked away from 1965 saying, that's probably the best answer I've heard. Because I always believed that there was a a, a man named Jesus. I had always believed that he had been crucified. And I always believed that he was buried. And interestingly enough, I'd always believed the tomb was empty. That's thanks to my grandparents. I didn't have a clue what any of it meant. So... I was a advanced swoon theory Passover plotist. But then you have to go back to, and it's, it's one of those things that was, I, I spent, I don't know how many months before I became a Christian trying to figure out, I, I'd come to the conclusion that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, James, Jude, uh, believed with a passion what they were writing. What I couldn't understand is how they could buy into it, especially the resurrection. It just didn't make sense to me. No scientific... how How do you deal with scientific evidence in this context? It doesn't, it doesn't happen. Candidly, I did believe in uh, uh, an intelligent design context. I believe there was some first cause. My, my uh, high school biology teacher, his name was Dr. Blodgett. He could have been teaching in universities, but loved teaching high school. And... Uh, he, he, shared, he shared, the more that science grows, the more it's going to be confused about how it all started. Because he says it's not even close. Of course, this is 1965, 64, 66. He says they're not even close to, to the level of what is involved. And now we're finding out that what we do know, which is so much more than then, we're not even close to what really is involved. And I, I, to, I don't know whether uh, Dr. Blodgett was a Christian or not, but he believed in intelligent design. He said there has to be a first cause out there. And that's the way he taught biology and science, and I bought into that. So I was a first cause swoonist, Passover plotist. 
who believed that there was a Jesus. And, you know, so I, you know, I, there's a number of things that went into my worldly belief system at that point. But when you start to look at this, some of the things that were recorded in the Scripture and, and never discounted anywhere else, and especially just the one picture of Pilate mandating to speak to the centurion who was the professional executioner before he would release the body. That centurion, somebody says, oh yeah, but he was a believer by then. I think he might have been on the road to it. But he, I do not believe he would have said he was dead and yes, he was. So I, I, I believe the account of the professional on the spot. So now I have a problem with the swoon theory, don't I? Or the path. I'm back to this dilemma. I've got an empty tomb and, and, and a, a dead Jesus in an empty tomb. And guards who were there. Who swear they don't know what happened. But because of bribe said, we'll say this. And it's one of those things where you more, you know, the more you, you read it, the more you, under, you see it. And, and the, I'm convinced that the, the Lord was in the process of opening my eyes. Uh, and then a small little book pops into the picture, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Then I actually got to see him speak. And I said, now I see. He hellish off the corners for me. But he says, you know, boy, it really boils down to something rather simple. If you, if you buy into there is a Jesus, he died on the cross, and there's an empty tomb, and that there's a, a, a following of him as a resurrected person after the fact, and you take everything that he taught beforehand, the stuff that comes after, he says, he says that Jesus was either a crazy person, a lunatic, or he was an extremely amazing liar, which kind of would put you with the, the, the Stonefield guy, what he said, or he was who he said he was. And after you start eliminating things and looking at things and seeing these things, you realize the ultimate evidence leans strongly towards he is who he said he was. And you see what Josh McDowell was trying to do was to put this thing, because you see, there is no way to prove this. And it's one of those things where I, he asked a, a simple question about George Washington. Can you prove about him crossing the Delaware? I said, yeah, sure. Look, here it is in the history book. Were you there? Did you see it? Well, I wouldn't. So, yeah, but this is an eyewitness. So you're believing that eyewitness and his passionate plea that this is what happened. Or that he was on his knees or that five bullets pierced his, his jacket but never hit him. Numbers of things about George Washington. Why do you believe those? Because the evidence leans that way. Or, you know, it's what we've been, you know, whatever. You know. And he says, he says, you can't prove it is what I'm getting at. Bob, where were you last night? I was at my home with my wife and my daughter. Can you prove it? Yes, ask my wife. No, that's hearsay. That's, uh, that's an eyewitness, but it still can't be proved. You see, that boils down to, here's all the evidence. How do you look at it and sort it out? And, and this is where it comes down to. What does the evidence most strongly lean towards? And this is where Josh McDowell came down. He says, if this were a court of law, and he was a law student, uh, had a law degree. If, he says, if this, if this were in a court of law, he says, by the time you were done, you would have enough evidence that would demand a verdict that Jesus was guilty of who he said he was. And he wrote the next sequence of books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Powerful, apologetic books that help you see that what we've talked about this morning is the truth about Jesus Christ. 
He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Word become flesh, walked amongst us with one major intent in His life, and that was to face the cross and say on the cross the words, It is finished, that we might, whoever would believe in Him, might have eternal life. He called the children of God, be children of the kingdom of God, and and be a part of of the, of the church of, of, and the body of Christ. Every time we come to take communion, what we're basically saying is Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus came in the flesh, the Son of God, emptied himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, became a man, a man who would serve men and ultimately go to the cross to die for us to accept the judgment that should be ours for our sins so that we can be absolved and and made right before the throne of God through Him. Our responsibility, well, let's let's look at it, is is to recognize, and this would be the scriptural picture, the back of your bulletin is is uh, called the Roman Road. And the bottom line is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People will say, well, I'm not a, willy, I'm not a wicked guy. That would have been me. I, I, my, my, my thing used to be, if there is a heaven, I, I'm as good as anybody else. What I didn't understand that that still wasn't good enough. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I had a friend who I asked to come up with his own code of ethics. Because he said mine was too, too hard. The biblical one was too hard. So he did, and we came back and we talked about it. And afterwards I said, have you ever broken any of your own personal codes of ethics? He said, yes. And I said, you're still a sinner then, even by your own definition of what sin is. He said, yeah, I guess I am. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, every one of us is in the same boat, is what this is trying to do to see. What are the wages of our sin? Death, according to Romans 6.23. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners and therefore deserving death, wages of sin, Christ died for us on the cross where he said the words, it is finished. The words, it is finished, paid in full. What's it mean? Therefore, going back to verse 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but in tremendous contrast, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, the one who died for us while, he was, while we were yet sinners. That's the free gift of God. How do we get there? Paul puts it pretty simply. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What this means is that there's something that happens in your heart that you feel and you know, and it is overwhelming, and you say, oh, now I get it. I do not ever ask for people to just make a decision on the spur of the moment and raise your hand, because I've been in enough of those situations where the majority even fill out cards, never show up to the churches that they said they would go to, and a lot of other things. What I am, though, is a person say, are you willing to examine your heart and say, God, if you're real, I want to know you. Isn't that a reasonable thing to say? Hey, if it's real? Because that was one of my first prayers. I finally got to the point, God, it looks like I've already received that. I did intelligent design, all these other kinds of things. If you're really real and this is really true, then I, I want to understand. And things started to fall into place. Next thing you know, August 15, 1976, 6.30 in the morning, 6.15 in the morning actually, on my knees after hearing a testimony of a person who I despised, Pat Bean, couldn't stand it. I said, Jesus, I believe you're real. I don't even know where to begin. Who knew it would lead to where we are today? All I'm saying is that this is the truth. 
how it works. The tomb is empty. It had the body of Jesus in it. The tomb was empty, and it was empty because of a physical bodily resurrection. There's one more truth that hinges all of this, in addition to being saved and being a part of the tomb. He says he's coming again to receive his church at one time to what is called the marriage feast. He says that's when he's going to celebrate this communion again with all of us at the same time. He says, until I return, do this in remembrance of me. Break the bread and share it and eat it and drink the cup together. That's what we're going to do now this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, is to share the thanksgiving that Christ has done. So the ushers come, pass out the emblem, hold them until we've all been served, and we will share at the same time. At what is traditionally looked at in the Gospels as the Last Supper, Jesus was eating the meal with his disciples. And he took the traditional unleavened bread at the, at the meal. And again, following the tradition of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the Hebrew people, he 
gave thanks for the bread. He broke it. He passed it to his disciples. But then he gave it in a, in a, a brand new meaning. He said, this is my body. And what he was saying is the reality. I have come in the flesh. This is my body. The bread represents my flesh. And it is broken for you. Meaning that it is, it's, it's been abused and bruised and, 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 and broken for you. And he asked us, as often as we would share this bread together, that we would do it in remembrance of him. Same meal in the evening, the end of the meal, he took the cup of blessing. I, I have a picture in my mind that he probably held it up. And he's basically said, again, giving it new importance. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. To purchase that, the covenant. He was referring to the covenant of grace. And one of the things that he asked us again was that we would do this together. He says, I'm not going to do this until... We can all do it together, you know, at, at that one point, which I believe is a picture of the marriage feast. And, and he says, so until I come again, do it in remembrance of me. But the picture is that the, the, the bread isn't his physical body. This isn't really his blood. They are symbols of what and who he is and what he has done. And every time we drink this cup, we can say, thank you, Jesus, as the words are even in that song, as he cried out, it is finished. Thank you, Jesus. It is finished for me. Father, we thank you again this morning for the, the love, the mercy, and the grace that you've poured out. And while we celebrate it in a unique way today, possibly, it's every Sunday. It's every time we come to worship. In fact, it doesn't have to be Sunday. It can be as often as we gather together that we take the opportunity to worship you, to thank you, to, to sing to you, to pray to you, to acknowledge you as the one and only God and, and the one and only Savior. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, your, your mercy, your grace. Cause us to leave today with the confidence that the God of all creation is our Savior. That we might rest in that and enjoy an opportunity to share it with someone else. I take a moment to say thank you to all in my life who took time to share their faith with me. And I ask your blessing on them. And again, thanking you for the day. In Jesus' name.